driving history in the past many decades has always been, like yours, going towards Statesville um, and getting on 77 South. God, I'm getting a headache just thinking about it. If, if you, all we all know, they've been working on 77 uh, South North for a long, long time, right? <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of a really great meme I saw recently that said this. Uh, treat yourself like I-40 in Statesville and never stop working on yourself, no matter how inconvenient it is for everyone else. <laughs> it's a long punchline, but I had to read it. Uh, it's still happening. They're still taking the clover leaf and making it this huge spaghetti-type situation. Very good idea, because when you, before, you know, when you get up to go south, it was a pinch point, right, with the things coming together, and when I was like a 16-year-old, I thought I was going to die, and... You know, it's scary. So they're finally doing that. They've worked all the way up from the city, you know, going up to Statesville. And growing up in suburban Atlanta in the early to mid-80s, uh, that was a time when MARTA, have you ever been, been on MARTA before? It was starting to get built, and the city was literally exploding, and the Olympics, of course, came, and it just got way out of control. And there was a, there was a, there was a cloverleaf where I-85 and 285 met. And I know you're thinking, why are we talking about this in church today? I'm learning about transportation. Um, but it was called, uh, initially it was called Malfunction Junction <laughs> in the middle of the city. And it was so uh, uh, bad, they built what's famously called Spaghetti Junction, right? And it was finished in 1987, it is, it handles over 300,000 vehicles a day. It has 14 bridges. The highest one is almost 100 feet off the ground. So you're thinking, thank God I live in High Point or Greensboro or whatever. Um, today we're going to hear about a future king named David and how God was displeased with the current king of Israel, whose name was Saul. And so God told the prophet Samuel, go and pick, a, I'm going to tell you who to pick to replace Saul. I'm going to send you to find this young boy named David, and you're going to look at his heart. His heart is what is going to be his qualifying criteria for this kingship. And this is the same David, of course, that struck down Goliath in battle with a single stone, who was known for writing songs and psalms and playing instruments, and who had a heart for worship, a heart for God. But again, what is the heart? What is the purpose of the heart? The Hebrew understanding of the heart was that it is the center and seat and source of who you are intellectually, emotionally, uh, even ethically. It's that part of you, that consciousness. Essentially, you could sort of think of it as the way of, it's the center of a hub like Spaghetti Junction. In the middle of all of that, all these inputs are coming into the center of who you are. Everything we experience in life runs through the heart, right? It, it's all of these different intersection timelines and experiences and emotions. And, and, and unfortunately, some of the negative things in life can get gummed up in the, some of those roadways, right? Some of the unconfessed sin or the unforgiven sin can be like a traffic backup, and it, and it affects our hearts and our emotions. God sees all, all these timelines, all these roadways intersect. He sees how all of it comes through your life. 
and he sees what we do with what we've been given. He sees your capabilities, your shortcomings, your motives. And so you might be thinking, so you're telling me when God looked at David's heart, he saw a bunch of roads? Like, I'm confused. Clearly, it's a metaphor I'm using here. Because when he saw David's heart, he saw someone who genuinely loved God, who genuinely was authentic in his heart for God, a young boy who was alone in the field shepherding sheep who would worship God and the secret of those moments. God would see his heart. He would see the desires of his life, of his heart. He saw someone who essentially had an open hand and an open heart who was vulnerable and, and willing to let the plans of God flow freely through the center of who he, who he was, you know? And God, of course, saw that. He saw the essence of David's heart. And he decided to choose him to be anointed as king. And these words are from 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. He has seven sons, by the way, if you thought you had a lot of children. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. You'll say I'm a traitor. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse, David's father, to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And I, you shall anoint for me the one who, I'm, who I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Sometimes prophets would show up with not the best news. He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he, Samuel, looked at Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. Probably strapping young man, a young buck of a man. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? Basically, are you holding out on me? Are you keeping one in the cupboard? What's going on? Is one in the hall or the hallway or you know, hidden somewhere? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So there's three points I'm going to make. First is internal over external. Next is no fear, have a prophet's voice and then the weak shall lead the strong. So David had good externals, actually, but other scriptures tell us he was short. Not that that's a negative thing for all the short people in the room. It's not, of course. But he had athleticism. It says he was handsome. He had shining eyes, which is always a nice quality. He had, he had artistic talent. He had a heart of worship. He could play musical instruments. 
Those are all valuable, good external things, but they're only as good as it goes in tandem with the heart behind it. See, the world has no shortage of fabulous-looking people. You see that every morning when you look in the mirror, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Don't ditch the modesty. But why did God choose David? In spite of his flaws and failings that he would happen later in his life, we still speak of his name with great fondness and admiration. Even in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, uh, the apostles actually referred to David. After, after removing Saul, God made David their king, saying, I found David, son of Jesse, or man after my own heart, for he will do all I want him to do. The writer goes on, from this man's descendant, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. It would come through the line of Jesse, through the line of David, that the Messiah would come. The implication is here is that the right heart, the heart that God helps us, cleanses us, gives us, is the start of salvation. That it can be the roadway of which the purposes of God can be accomplished. And even though David was not a perfect person, he's a sinner like you and me, it was through his intention and his authenticity before God that the purposes of God were carried out. David had great externals, but backing it up was the heart. And Samuel actually doesn't get enough credit because here Samuel, the prophet, doesn't give up, right? He sees all seven of these, these sons and he goes, this isn't who God wants. You know, prophets typically are bold in that way. They go, no, the Lord told me this is not all there is. There has to be more. This is essentially discernment. He's obeying God over anything else. He's being faithful in this moment. He's being bold in this moment. And he does, you know, there's great power when we obey what God wants us to do and we don't back down. And you also choose, in Samuel's case, to name David, to be faithful and lay hands on him. Um, this was a pivotal, obviously a pivotal moment in David's life, probably the most important day of his life, right? I mean, he was working in the fields, taking care of sheep, dirty, sweaty, smelly, and here I got brought in all of a sudden, and all these people are here, and they dump oil on my head, and now I'm the king of Israel. (laughs) I mean, talk about winning the lottery here. I mean, that's a big turnaround. You know, but there's power in in obeying God and then naming God. saying, this is who God says you are. You know, Samuel didn't have to do that. Samuel could have backed down. Samuel could have said, "Mm, sorry, God, this is all he's got, and a stable of sons, and and that's all it is. But because Samuel was faithful in pressing in and not giving up, here we see David's life being changed and the nation of Israel being changed, and a good chunk of the Bible being written is by David. So this other theme of the weak shall lead the strong actually comes up a lot in the, throughout the scriptures. One of the primary ones, of course, is um, Joseph in the book of Genesis, this idea of a younger son gaining ascendancy over all of his brothers. Um, of course, jealousy ensues in those moments. I'm sure it probably happened here in 1 Samuel 16. They literally see their young, little, ruddy brother get anointed as the king in front of the, in their very presence. But you see this idea that God delights for the weak to lead the strong. He, 
he, he does this over and over again. This is to the heart of God. I mean, even think about Jesus when he picks the disciples. When he picks Peter, that first notice Simon, he knew that Simon was going to disown him one day. That he was going to deny him one day, but he chose him anyway. Jesus chose Judas, knowing that Judas was going to do what Judas's do, but he chose him anyway. What's revealing about when Jesus chooses the 12 disciples is that you see a lot of how Samuel chose David. They're not impressive people in the eyes of the world. None of the disciples had no uh, prominent place in the synagogue. None of them emerged from the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, these were common laboring men who I like to call a Joe six-pack. These were just Joe six-pack people living their lives. These were not, um, they did not have a lot of money. Maybe the sons of Zebedee did, but they weren't wealthy. They had no academic degrees. Maybe the only education they had was like what they learned in the synagogue growing up. Most of these people were country working people. So you're thinking, why in the world would God choose those men? Why in the world would God choose David? The disciples were impulsive. They're temperamental. They're easily offended. They had all their prejudices of their environment. They were slow to comprehend spiritual things. They never understood the parables. In short, they represented a cross-section of their society. But here's how the grace of God works, though. He's not pandering to them. He's not condescending them. He's not looking down on them. The grace of God is the good and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. In their hearts, they had a humble authenticity. They had a sense of childlike wonder. They were never afraid to ask questions. They, were, they weren't afraid to make mistakes, and they made plenty, just like David. So what does Jesus see in them? What does Samuel, the Spirit of God through Samuel, see in David? And what does God see in us today? Why doesn't Jesus choose the strong the learned, the super religious, the rich, the powerful, the people with political connections. David is an unknown shepherd boy. The disciples were unknown fishermen and common laborers. Me and you here today. And when I was thinking about this, I immediately thought of Matthew eleven twenty five, where Jesus prays. It's a remarkable thing when they write down when, when Jesus prays and we get to have an account of this. He prays a prayer and he says, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think of themselves wise and clever and revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. See, there's something about the humble that God delights in. God's word says that he lifts up the humble, but he's literally opposed to the proud. He cannot work with the proud and the arrogant and the person that assumes that they have everything figured out already. See, the, the disciples, the, David, me and you, he, he exalts the humble and rejects the proud. He hides his purposes from the wise and the clever of the world and he reveals it to those who admit, my heart is a mess. On a good day, I feel like a five o'clock traffic on a, in Spaghetti Junction. It is backed up. I'm a sinner. And I don't know what to do about it. 
years later, after an adultery scandal of King David, if you didn't know that story, it's pretty saucy. He sees a woman bathing on a roof, roof named Bathsheba, decides to take her as his lover, and then he does a little plan to have her husband killed on the front line of battle. So he essentially murders Uriah, her husband. Soon after that, David would write these words. So these are, this is his prayer, where it's not his words on a page, it's coming from his life. This is King David, the anointed king of Israel. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He's acknowledging my heart's not clean, God. I know I screwed up. And put a new and right spirit within me. I don't know about y'all. Does anybody need, need a new and right spirit today? Sure, yeah, sure we do. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, there are times in our lives, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, keep that up there, please. There's times in our lives when we need our joy restored. We need our salvation restored. We need to go back to the start and be reminded of the goodness of God. Have a, have a fresh experience with the Holy Spirit to be restored of the joy of what G- Jesus has done on your behalf. And even in those moments when you know you're a mess and you know your heart's messed up and you know you have sin you need to confess, God in his goodness still sustains us I think God, that, that, is a, that is the kind of prayer God answers. I just, over and over and over again. Um, that's the kind of prayer God never rejects. If you're like, create in me a clean heart, God. Put a new and right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So did David do wrong things? Absolutely. Repeatedly. Did the disciples mess up? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Plenty of times. Bonus, do you and I do wrong things? You better believe it. Should we pray for others and the wrong things they do? Absolutely, absolutely. But should we also with equal fervor, like David, pray for our own stuff? Yeah. I think you should probably start there to be rigorous in judging yourself before going to somebody else. So if you equally, with equal fervor, pray to God, create with me a clean heart, give me a clean heart, put a new spirit within me, remove the traffic accidents of my past, remove the stuck things that are going on. See, I don't know what you could be hiding today from God. We all have things we hide. We all have things that we don't want to admit. And we tend to think it's somebody else's fault and not ours. Not, this isn't for self-loathing or anything like that, but this is how you get to a place of freedom is when we admit that, you know what? Sometimes it was my fault. I screwed up. God, I'm sorry. Created me a clean heart. Make me a, new, make me a better disciple. Because, you know, most of the people in the room, those at home, I know you've received Christ's forgiveness. You know God is love. Maybe you went through confirmation, you've been baptized, but you're still hungry for more. And that's a good thing. If you're still hungry for more of God, that is a Holy Spirit-led hunger. And you know what? Deep down, you want more from your relationship with God. You know there's more to God. And here's good news, friends. There is always more with God. 
He doesn't run out. His, his resources don't, aren't exhausted. He doesn't get tired. Like Bono from U2, you could be thinking, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that, that, again, that's part of the discipleship life is that yes, I have peace in Jesus. He has set me free from sin. I know I'll be in heaven one day living forever. Hallelujah, by the way, on that one. But until that day, sustain within me a right spirit. Give me the tools in my toolbox to keep moving forward. I know, God, you're there, but I don't always feel it. I've been thinking about this lately, that complacency is one of the most destructive things in the spiritual life. It's just it's resting on your hands and saying, you know what, I have found what I'm looking for. I'm good. I don't need to read the Bible anymore. I don't need to go to church. Whatever. I'm good. You know, complacency is very dangerous. It's just, it reminds me of people that say, that claim to have no bias, like people that claim they're perfectly open-minded. I run the other direction from those people because when you say you don't have bias, you really are saying, I don't have the ability to self-reflect. Everybody has a bias on some level. Everybody has an opinion on something, and that's okay. But for someone to say you literally don't have a bias, you're being complacent in yourself. It's the same way when people go, my heart's fine before God. I'm good. I don't need any healing from Jesus today. Thank you very much. I'm all full. I'm perfect just the way I am. I would say to you, you have not self-reflected on the word of God in the light of God's word, you're not being honest with yourself or even with God because all people need healing. We all need prayer. We all need a fresh touch of God. We all need God to create within us a new heart continually, day after day. As, Je- as Matthew 23, Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If your prayer is create within me a clean heart, O God, if that is this resonating with you big time, we're gonna sing a song in a minute and Lisa and I will be up front to pray with you. Because we can't bear one another's burdens if we don't literally bear one another's burdens, can we? I can send you a note from afar, and that's great. Praying for you, love you. It's not quite the same, though, as if we literally are with each other, right? <laughs> and, and praying for each other. And we, friends, that is church at its best, isn't it? That it's relationships, it's people and God. And when we, we, we bear one of those burdens together, there is, through those moments, I don't fully understand it, but through those moments of prayer, God works he heals, he transforms, we create space for his spirit to move. So as we sing this song, I invite you to pray with me again. Uh, we can come pray at the front if you wish. Let's pray. God, indeed, our hearts are before you. God, we thank you in the, in the majesty and wonder of who you are. You know the deepest recesses of our hearts. You see us just as we are. And God, I thank you, Jesus, that you said, John 3, that the light has come into the world. And that you have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world through your son. And that the father's desire is that all people would come willingly into the light and not hang back in the shadows and not listen to the voice of shame, 
or condemnation, but to come willingly into your presence. Jesus, that you are always inviting. You're always pulling your people toward you. You're always welcoming people into your arms. And that it's in your presence that there is freedom. Where your spirit is, there is freedom. But many of us need to confess some sin today to clear up our hearts. Give us a fresh touch of your spirit. A new move of God in our lives. To confess that we've been complacent. And Lord, thank you that you meet us in those moments. You don't reject us but that you see more in us than we see in ourselves. You see our future. You see who you want us to be. But it starts in our heart. Yes, the place only you can heal, Lord. We give you this time and this time of prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand together.